Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello to everyone. You know, in his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens begins with the famous words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. As Dickens unfolds his story, he continues his contrasting themes with light and darkness, uh, hope and despair, belief and unbelief. In our study of Revelation chapter 6, as we had read about the future, it will certainly be, well, the worst of times, filled with darkness, despair, and unbelief. But coming now to chapter 7, we come to, I guess, what are the best of times in the tribulation period when we will see or we will hear about and know about evangelism and salvation. One excellent pastor and commentator wrote these words, Nowhere in all scripture will you find one word or description that says anything good about the tribulation period unless it's the promise that it will end after seven years. You know, I understand why he said that, and I understand the the perspective he had when he said that. But even so, and with all due respect, Revelation chapter 7 actually describes something very good taking place in the tribulation period, the salvation of countless numbers of people. As we've talked about before, the unprecedented horrors of the tribulation will actually serve as a catalyst for the greatest outpouring of salvation in the history of mankind. And so while it will be a time of great condemnation, it will also be a time of great conversion. People will not be able to change the fact that they're in the tribulation, but they will have a choice about where they spend eternity. The darkest period in the history of mankind will also include a time of great light. Revelation 7 is now like a a parenthesis or an interlude, if you will, between the opening up of the sixth and seventh seals on that scroll that's up in heaven. When we get to chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened up by Jesus and it brings further judgments, which will come in rapid succession. The opening up of the seventh seal unleashes seven terrible trumpet judgments, which in turn leads to seven horrific bowl judgments. You know, chapter 6 then closed with the question, For the great day of God's wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, here in chapter 7, the answer is that a countless number of people will receive Christ and stand for their faith. When it comes to the gospel, we're reminded in Romans 10, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him if they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Then in Matthew 24, Jesus made the statement during his Olivet Discourse saying, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, some have concluded that those words spoken by Jesus mean that the entire world must hear the gospel first and prior to the rapture and to the start of the tribulation period. However, the end will actually come when Jesus returns at his second coming, at the end of the tribulation. So during the tribulation, the gospel will finally reach the whole world. 
You know, not many miles from where I live is a very large church. It's called World Outreach Church. And when we first moved here to this area in Tennessee, and I first heard that name, I have to admit, I really wasn't sure what to make of it. You know, down the streets, a little local community church, and up the road is World Outreach Church. Well, we ended up attending there a few times, and while it is exceptionally large, we found it to be a solid, Bible-teaching, God-honoring church. And ultimately, that's what the church is to be today, a world outreach church. That work of evangelism and outreach will continue then after the church has been raptured up to heaven. And so let's begin our reading together now. We're going to pick up in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 7. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. There were 12,000 each from the tribes of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Here then, we're reading about the Tribulation Preachers, which is the title of this message. After the opening of the first six seals and seeing the catastrophic events associated with them, John tells us in verse 1 that he saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. Hey, I just have to confess to you that years ago, my studies of Revelation 7 led me to an experience, uh, an attitude adjustment about the wind. What I mean by that is the wind has always been my least favorite weather condition. I love rain, lightning, and thunder, and I don't mind hot or cold weather, but heavy winds have always irritated me. You know, kind of like how dogs get annoyed when you blow in their face. But as I dug deeper into these verses and realized how adversely life will be affected without any wind, well, I changed my tune very quickly. John sees a vision of the future when all the winds around the world will suddenly stop blowing. God has put the wind on the earth for our benefit and blessing, and everyone living in the world at this time is going to recognize that fact very quickly. The wind moving across the earth is akin to the planet breathing. The winds move moisture from the ocean waters onto the land and brings us rain. That rain helps to produce our crops, and so a lack of wind would quickly produce a global drought. And don't forget, we just read about a global fam uh, famine in the previous chapter, so things are going to get even worse. This also means that the smoke and ash from the potential volcanoes that we talked about previously will settle into place, and the same would be true for any potential nuclear fallout. John's reference here in verse 1 to the four corners of the earth simply refers to the four compass points of the world, north, south, east, and west. And the four winds simply include all the winds of the earth. The Greek word describing the four angels holding back the winds depicts great effort in restraining something. So the winds will struggle and strain to break free 
while these angels will exert great effort in holding them back. When the winds stop, it will be as if God has turned the engine off on the earth. Make no mistake about it, it's the eye of the storm and a temporary interlude to God's continuing judgments. Not only will the wind cease, but as we read here in verse 3, God will pause his judgments while he assembles his special army of evangelists. The specific number of this group is given to us, 144,000. In verse 3, we also read that they are uh, referred to as servants, which is that familiar Greek word doulos, meaning bondservants or willing servants. So uh, they have already become believers by this point in the tribulation, as God now appoints them to a special ministry of evangelism. They were not saved prior to the tribulation, or else they would have gone up in the rapture. Another very important detail here, then, is that they are clearly identified as Jews. Just as God used 12 Jewish apostles to turn the world upside down with the gospel back in the first century, he will use 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the tribulation to do the same. Now, as clear and straightforward as this is, many religious leaders and groups have proceeded to muddy the waters. For example, the Jehovah Witnesses have long claimed that the 144,000 represents a number of their group that will reign with Christ in heaven. Trouble is that later on, when their membership surpassed that number, they had to adjust their position and revise their statement to say that the 144,000 are elite members who will go to heaven while all the other members of their group would live on the earth in bliss. Uh, that is both absurd and unbiblical. Another religious group, uh, the Worldwide Church of God, founded by Herbert W. Armstrong, also claimed that their church members are the 144,000. Many members of that group were led to believe if they contributed triple tithes to their church, then they would have a better chance of being among the 144,000. Why does that sound like some kind of a form of spiritual lottery to me? The Seventh-day Adventists have also claimed that the 144,000 refers to them. Others have tried to argue that the promises of Israel are now the promises of God to the church in the last days, and so they claim that this group represents the church. However, there are no verses in Scripture which equate the church to being Israel. And you know, the term Israel in the Bible never refers to Gentiles, but rather to the descendants of Jacob. The text itself identifies these servants as physical Jews, even identifying the various tribes that the various Jews are descended from. And oh, by the way, only God himself knows which tribe each Jew is descended from today. That's because when the Jewish temple was destroyed back in AD 70, so were all of the genealogical records, and therefore no Jew can prove today what tribe he or she is descended from, and so only God truly knows. But here's the bottom line to this whole discussion. Who in their right mind would want to be a part of this 144,000? I mean, I have to shake my head when I read about the different groups laying claim, oh, we're the 144,000. Think about it for a moment. To be a part of this group of the 144,000, you would have to be an unsaved Jew who misses the rapture, then comes to faith in the tribulation, and then is chosen by God for this special service. 
I don't want to be a part of the 144,000. I'm quite thrilled with being a part of the raptured saints in heaven, worshiping the Lord when the tribulation begins. I'm very grateful that God will raise this group of 144,000 up, but I have no desire to be a part of that group. And so clearly this will be 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, with that said, one of Jacob's sons, Dan, along with his tribe, is not included here on this list. His name is actually replaced by Manasseh, the son of Joseph, uh, and the grandson of Jacob. And so the natural question is why? Why is Dan's name omitted? Well, we're not given a specific answer, but in the Old Testament, we find the possible answer to the question. Because it was the tribe of Dan and his descendants who were responsible for introducing idolatry into Israel, as we read in Judges 18 and, in fact, in other places as well. But on the bright side, according to what Ezekiel wrote about Israel in the millennial kingdom, Dan's tribe will still share in the blessings of that kingdom that reigns on earth. But Dan's tribe will not share in the privilege of this special service here during the tribulation period. That explanation is favored by many commentators, and I think it's a good one. You know, in this current time of rabid anti-Semitism and opposition to Israel, God is preparing to use his Jewish people as the means by which countless numbers of people, both Jew and Gentile, are going to be saved during the tribulation. As one pastor put it, in the future, from the Jewish people will come the greatest missionary force the world has ever known. I like that. As we read in Romans, God is not through with his people Israel. As God's chosen people, Israel was appointed by God in the Old Testament to be his light of grace to the world, but they failed. Nevertheless, they will fulfill that appointed call finally in the last days before Christ returns. There in the tribulation, God will give them the opportunity to be his missionary light, and they will succeed. Israel will be a light to the world in the world's darkest hours. And many more Jews will be saved, far beyond just the 144,000, but this particular group will be chosen for this special service. In these verses, we read that these Jewish servants are sealed unto the Lord, and that they will receive that seal on their foreheads. In Scripture, a seal refers to both ownership and protection. As New Testament believers today, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as we read in Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit living inside of us is our guarantee that God will bring us safely home to heaven. These servants are sealed as belonging to God, which symbolizes that the Lord will protect them in the course of their service. Later in the tribulation, the Antichrist will imitate this seal of the Lord's servants on their foreheads, and he will require the world's citizens to receive his mark on their foreheads or on their right hand. It's worth noting then that while the Antichrist marks his followers, God seals his servants. Now we may be wondering how the Lord will protect the 144,000 servants while the rest of the world is experiencing global judgment and catastrophe. The scripture is full of examples of how God is able to keep those who belong to him safe even in times of judgment. When the Lord was judging the world with the global flood in Genesis, remember God protected Noah and his family in the ark. 
when God determined to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, he first delivered Lot and his two daughters before that judgment fell. When the plagues were coming against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God did not, did not allow those plagues to affect any of the Hebrews who were living close by to the same area. Later on, as Moses and the people passed safely through the Red Sea, the walls of water came crashing down upon the pursuing Egyptian armies. When Joshua was leading an attack against the city of Jericho, God protected Rahab and her family. And in the same way, God will protect these servants during the tribulation period, even as his judgment continues to fall upon the rest of the world. Along with protecting them from the divine judgments around them, God will also protect them from the Antichrist who will want to kill them for their faith and witness. In that regard, we might think of how God protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of King Nebuchadnezzar, or how God protected Daniel in the lion's den. And the same will be true of God's two witnesses in Revelation 11. I would also point out, just for the record, that these 144,000 servants will be men, according to what we read about them uh, later in Revelation 14.4, These chosen Jewish servants will not defile themselves with women. That is to say, they will remain morally pure, but the point is that they are men. So then what is the special ministry and service that God will call the 144,000 Jews to do? Why do we oftentimes speak of them as witnesses and evangelists? Well, the answer lies in the verses that follow. So let's resume our reading now. Let's go up to verse 9. After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures." They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders, John says, asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? John says, I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are uh, they who have come out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, after reading about how God will select and seal the 144,000 Jewish servants, John says that afterwards, immediately, he sees an innumerable assembly, assembly of people in heaven. They're from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people standing before the throne of God and before Jesus the Lamb, and they're dressed in white robes. This is a picture of what results from the ministry of the 144,000, countless numbers of souls from every region of the world now standing in heaven. 
This second group that cannot be numbered is the result of the first group of the 144,000 Jewish servants. So the special calling and ministry of the 144,000 will be that of evangelism and gospel witnessing. By the way, I hope you catch this. For those who believe that the church will go through the tribulation, I would point out that if the church were there actually in the tribulation, God would clearly be using them to evangelize and share. After all, Christ's commission to the church in the Gospels was to take the gospel to the whole world. But there is no mention of the church on the earth during the tribulation in the book of Revelation And that explains why God now appoints these 144,000 Jews. The church will be in heaven during this time, having gone up in the rapture. This force of uh, Jews will be like 144,000 Apostle Pauls, or as Pastor Greg Laurie likes to say, think of them as being like 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. This will be a fulfillment of Christ's words. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. John describes this as a great multitude which no one could number. Now, God certainly knows the number because they're now his sons and daughters, but no one else will be able to do a head count. I mean, it would be like walking outside at night, looking up at the night sky and trying to count the stars. By the way, some of the people that you've shared with and who didn't go up with you in the rapture will be in this group, and I hope that brings joy to your heart. The seeds of your witness and sharing will bear fruit in the future tribulation period. Not only will many people be saved, but multitudes of people from all around the world will go to heaven. What a glorious picture this is of believers in heaven coming from every nation, tribe, and language. Let us never forget that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that the Lord is not willing that any should perish. In the midst of God's great wrath and judgment, we continue to read and find and see God's great mercy and grace. Even the demonic stronghold that the devil will have on the world through the Antichrist will not stop the gospel from being preached, heard, and received. And, you know, along those lines, I'm pretty confident that that, uh, while the gospel will be banned from all media outlets such as television, radio, and podcasts, uh, that's because there will be a new world order and a one world religion, and clearly the good news of Jesus Christ will not be their message of that future religion. Instead, uh, the new religious message will be to worship and follow the Antichrist. But in spite of those demonic restrictions... God's army of 144,000 Jewish evangelists will bring the gospel to the whole world. And with that, I also believe that there will be many Bibles found by those who are lost and looking for answers. The Bible will definitely be banned, and I'm sure there will be many community bonfires for burning Bibles, kind of like the Nazis burned many books in bonfires during the 1930s. But even so, many Bibles will survive and make their way into the hands of people desperate for answers. The Bible truly is the indestructible book. The white robes that the believers are wearing, just like the church saints in heaven back in chapter 4, along with the earlier tribulation saints back in in chapter 6, represents the righteousness of God and the holiness of God's people. They will also have palm branches in their hands, which symbolize victory and celebration. 
going back to the Old Testament, you know, palm branches were used heavily during the Feast of Tabernacles, and the people would wave them in the air almost like flags. In the New Testament, we remember when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on what became known as Palm Sunday, and he was greeted by the people waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! Well, in verse 10, we find that this group will be shouting, Salvation belongs to our God, and that is very similar in meaning to the word Hosanna, which means save now. In verse 10, the chorus of this multitude will be, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And notice that they're proclaiming this in a loud voice. And as we read through these chapters, you know, a lot of things are loud up in heaven. The voice of God, the voice of the saints, the proclamation of the angels, and so forth. The older we get, the less we like loud noises, or maybe that's just me. But in heaven, it seems that God likes it loud. And you know what? We're all going to be just fine with that as well. In verses 11 and 12, these tribulation martyrs are with the angels and with the New Testament saints who came up in the rapture, praising the Lord with another sevenfold anthem of praise. The heavenly choir just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. Then in verse 13, one of the elders asked John a rhetorical question as to the identity of these new arrivals in heaven. This elder is making the point that this group is somewhat different from those who were already up there in heaven. And this is reinforced by the fact that John seems uncertain as to how to answer. The elder then identifies this group of new arrivals as martyrs who have come up out of the tribulation period. These martyrs are now joining the other martyrs already there from the earlier days of the tribulation. But here's the difference. This uh, second group of martyrs are the fruit of the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. I would also point out that this elder describes this group of martyrs in verse 14 as coming out of the great tribulation. We've talked about this before. The seven-year tribulation period is referred to in the New Testament as both the tribulation and as the great tribulation. The great tribulation makes a more specific reference to the last three and a half years when the persecution from the Antichrist will greatly intensify. Now, in the final three verses of this chapter, we learn some important facts about heaven. In verse 15, we read that these martyrs and all the saints for that martyr uh, matter will be around the throne of God and God will dwell among us. This helps us who wonder what we'll be doing up in heaven for eternity. I mean, the most obvious answer is we'll be worshiping God and the Lamb. We read about that in verses 11 and 12. And as wonderful as that will be, that's not all that we'll be doing. As you look more closely at verse 15, you'll see that we'll be serving God day and night in the temple. Of course, we're all curious as to what type of work or service will we be rendering in heaven. And since some of that service takes place in and around the temple, and since God has made us kings and priests in his kingdom, according to verse 6 of chapter 1, I think it's safe to say that we'll all be doing some types of ministry work in heaven. I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm excited to know that we'll have that opportunity because the ministry service opportunities here have brought us great joy. In verse 16, we also learn that we will uh, be fully free from all trials and difficulties. On the one hand, that's a direct reference to the martyrs who came up 
uh, from the tribulation period. They were suffering hunger and thirst and persecution. But make no mistake about it, this promise is for all believers through all the ages. In this life, everyone has suffered to some degree as a result of persecution and certainly from living in a fallen world. But in heaven, there will be no more suffering. In verse 17, Christ will continue to be our shepherd in heaven. He will lead us to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, as great as all of that sounds, the greatest joy of heaven and what actually makes heaven heaven is the presence of God, and it will be seeing Jesus face to face. One question that oftentimes comes up in regards to there being no tears in heaven, and, and I'll close with this, is when believers ask about their loved ones who didn't make it. Won't our memory of them cause us tears and sorrow? Well, in Isaiah 65, 17, we find these words from God. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And then in Revelation 21, 5, God once again says, Behold, I make all things new. So it appears that we'll have no memory of many past things, such as lost family and friends. Therefore, the time for us to speak to them about Jesus is today. Because as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 6, today, now, is the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. <music> 